Dr. Rhonda Patrick here. Today I'm sitting here with my friend and my mentor, Dr. Bruce Ames. Bruce has had an enormous influence over my research, and as you hear him speak today, that'll become quite evident. Bruce has had an amazingly prolific scientific career. He's published over 550 papers, naming him the title as the 23rd most top scientist, 23rd most top science cited scientist across all different fields from 1973 to 1984. Bruce, uh, most recently, Bruce and I have co-authored two papers together, one that was published last February on the role vitamin D plays in serotonin production and how this relates to autism, and the second paper, which was just recently accepted for publication, is on vitamin D and the marine omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, and what role they play in ADHD, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and impulsive behavior. Bruce is a professor emeritus at University of California in Berkeley, and he is now the director of the Nutrition and Metabolism Center at Children's Hospital Oakland Research Institute, where I have the pleasure of working with him every day. Bruce is the inventor of the Ames mutagenicity test, which for those of you that don't know what that is, it's a very simple and cheap test that uses bacteria to test whether or not chemical compounds can be immunogen, which means that they contain things that can damage DNA and, and cause a mutation, and thus can be a carcinogen, which can cause cancer. It's, it's Bruce's Ames test that identified that one of the main components in permanent hair dyes back in the 1970s contained some, uh, a chemical in it that was mutagenic, and thus a potential carcinogen. And he published a paper on that, sent it to all the hair dye companies, and told them they had to do something about this, and eventually they pulled the, the compound out of their permanent hair dyes. In addition, his, the Ames test also identified that uh, the main chemical in flame retardants that was used in children's pajamas uh, also were mutagenic and thus could be a carcinogen. So we have the Ames test and Bruce to thank for our children's pajamas not having carcinogens in them. More recently, Bruce has gotten into nutrition, and he has come up with something that he calls the triage theory, which I would like to talk about today. And I'll let Bruce elaborate on, on what the triage theory is. But uh, the underlying principle is that just because we are walking around today without acute deficiencies, like acute symptoms of deficiencies like scurvy or beriberi, doesn't mean that there aren't some long-term consequences to not getting enough vitamins and minerals. So Bruce, why don't we start there? Why don't you tell us about the epiphany that led you into nutrition and ultimately to come okay. up with the triage theory? I seem to change my field every 10 years or so, and I love getting into new fields because I read very widely and usually can make some contribution. Anyway, I, nutrition just seemed horribly complicated, and I never paid too much attention, but I got a little bit interested because of oxidation and antioxidants, and then a fellow named Jim McGregor came to my lab on sabbatical. He's a cytogeneticist, and he was studying what happens when mice get irradiated. You break chromosomes, and that's the most dangerous aspect of radiation. And right before McGregor came to my lab, he had done this gorgeous experiment with a person. And had well, what he, he had found that when he was feeding mice, uh, he was treating mice with radiation and looking at various things that uh, affected that. And one day all his control mice were full of chromosome breaks. And he said, what's going on? And he tracked it down to the company that sold him the vitamin mix. 
had by mistake left folic acid out of the vitamin mix. And so he did a dose response in folic acid, and the less folic acid the mice got, the more chromosome breaks. At some point, with no folic acid, they'll all just die, but there was always a trace around. And so, um, so folic acid deficiency does the same thing as radiation. Everybody's worried about uh, Fukushima uh, and radiation coming from Japan, which was incredibly tiny amounts. And meanwhile, they're eating these bad diets that do the same thing. So after McGregor showed that folic acid deficiency broke human chromosomes and broke mouse chromosomes, I got a bit of an epiphany. I said, gee, half the poor are at that level of folic acid. I ought to get into nutrition. Maybe other vitamin and mineral deficiencies do that. And this is huge compared to little bits of pesticide or something in your water. Those were all, all seem trivia to me. Uh, and so... Um, can you explain, uh, I know, you know, I know why folic acid deficiency can, can yeah. cause double-stranded breaks, which is like being irradiated, yeah. but can you explain to... Well, we showed, in fact, the mechanism. Folic acid delivers one carbon groups. Uh, vitamins, most of them are co-enzymes for some enzyme in metabolism that's doing the work, some work. And one pathway that folic acid is involved with is putting one carbon units into DNA and into RNA. So it's involved with nucleic acid synthesis. And therefore, if you don't have enough, you cause problems in nucleic acid synthesis. And so one of some students in my lab showed that the reason that folic acid deficiency causes problems is you don't um, put a methyl group on thymine. Now, thymine is in DNA and uracil is in RNA, and the cell has tagged the base pairings the same, but the cell has tagged what's DNA and what's RNA. And if you don't do that, the repair enzymes cruising along the DNA all the time looking for trouble. If they see a uracil, that can come from a deamination of the cytosine, so it gets taken out of the DNA. It shouldn't be in DNA. And you make a transient nick in the DNA, so you break one of the two strands, but the other strand is holding it together. But if you have two nearby lesions, one on one strand and one on the other, the chromosome falls apart. And the radi- people think radiation works in the same way, because you get a cluster of electrons in radiation, and you damage both strands near each other. And that's a rare event, but when it happens, and you then repair both of them out at the same time, the oxidative damage, you get a chromosome break. And so that's the most dangerous part of radiation. So um, anyway, it all made mechanistic sense. We understood how it was working, and uh, one of my students and one of Fennec's students uh, compared radiation to folate deficiency. So it was a pretty solid case that it worked in both mice and in people. So when I realized that half the poor 
were at a level of folic acid where they were breaking their chromosomes. And the poor tend to eat the worst diet. In fact, uh, yeah. so uh, I said, I ought to get into nutrition. And I love getting into new fields because I read broadly in science and often can make a contribution to a new field. So I've been doing that every 10 or 15 years. I seem to change my field. And so the last 10 or 15 years I've been in nutrition and it's a wonderfully muddy field. It's just, a, I love being in a field like that. And there's not a lot of competition with people who have my kind of background in nutrition. Anyway, I think I've made a few contributions. So um, one of the things we found is I looked in the literature, put in the, Google is wonderful now, you put in the 30 vitamins and minerals, you need 30 different substances uh, to run your metabolism. They're cofactors for enzymes mostly. And if you don't get any one, you die. But the criteria for calling something of a vitamin is that the mice, mice die, or people die, or get scurvy or beriberi or some horrible disease. But when I asked about DNA damage, lots of deficiencies cause that. And I kept on wondering, why is nature doing that? Why is it breaking your chromosomes or damaging your DNA when you don't get enough? And some with the literature, some with studies we did, and one day it hit me and I got this theory came into my head. It's just what nature wants because through all of evolution, animals have been running out of vitamins and minerals. You need 30 different ones. And the, there are about 15 minerals and you're getting them from the soil. The plants take them up out of the soil you need magnesium, you need calcium, you need iron, you need zinc. Anyway, there are all these that are involved in metabolism. Zinc is in 2,000 enzymes that have zinc fingers or otherwise need zinc. And magnesium is in 500 enzymes or so. Every DNA repair enzyme has magnesium in it. And calcium is in your, and it's also in the bones, and calcium. So we need these substances. Anyway, I, what I postulated is since the minerals aren't spread evenly through the world, the red soils with a lot of iron and the soils with very little iron. The selenium, too much selenium is a poison and too little selenium is a poison. Selenium is necessary for 25 enzymes or so as a cofactor. And so... And the, in Europe, the patches of too much selenium and too little selenium. In China, there's a disease called Keshan syndrome, where people get heart disease and other bad things because they're poisoned by too much selenium, but there are also areas where they don't get enough selenium. So uh, each one of these vitamins has been studied very extensively. And so what I postulated just as a an idea that came to my head is that when you, when you get a little low on any vitamin or mineral, it's in nature's benefit to ration it. And so the way it rations it, where would you expect if you don't have an, enough selenium or vitamin K or magnesium or whatever? 
What's nature going to do? Well, it's going to put it into those proteins that say they're uh, 25 selenium proteins or 16 vitamin K-dependent proteins. It's going to put it into those proteins that are essential for survival because what nature wants you to do is survive and reproduce. That's strong selection. And living to 90, nature really doesn't care about your past your reproductive age anyway. So there's not much selection for that. So the enzymes that are keeping you having a long lifespan, and those are the enzymes like DNA repair enzymes that DNA damage is insidious and it accumulates through your lifespan and increases your risk of getting cancer all the time. Or one of the vitamin K enzymes is blood clotting. And if you cut yourself and you didn't have blood clotting, you just bleed to death. And that happens often enough that uh, it's, it's an essential protein where uh, one of the vitamin K proteins prevents calcification of the arteries. They're all calcium-binding proteins, vitamin K proteins. And if you don't have that protein, you slowly accumulate atherosclerotic plaques, calcification of the arteries. And that'll eventually lead to heart disease, but it takes 10 years or so. So basically what nature is doing is trading long-term health for short-term health. So, and it wants short-term survival. And it made perfect sense, and evolutionary biologists discussed that concept in other ways, not in the biochemistry. So anyway, I wrote a theoretical paper saying, hey, this is a, an interesting theory and has a lot of implication for human nutrition. And then later, Joyce McCann in my lab, came, she came into my office one day and said, I'm a little skeptical of your triage theory. I think there's a better way of tackling it. I said, Joyce... What do you want to do? Go to it. She's a really smart cookie. And she said, well, I'll research a couple of one vitamin and one mineral that have been well studied and see is triage, this triage idea that there's a rationing really built in. I called it triage. Uh, and I said, terrific, Joyce, go to it. So she turned out two beautiful reviews, one on vitamin K and one on selenium. And they both have a system for rationing so that, for example, in vitamin K, the clotting proteins get it first. And only after they're satisfied do you do uh, prevent calcification of the arteries or prevent cancer or prevent uh, bone fractures. All these things are proteins that help, help in these things, but it's all insidious damage that you get that's a long-term consequence. In fact, we call those the disease of aging. Your brain so slowly goes out, or your heart slowly goes out, or your DNA gets damaged, and you get cancer. And so she showed it's true for both of these systems, and I think it's going to be true for all the vitamins and minerals. I mean, I agree with you. It makes perfect sense that you know that the the vitamins and minerals that you're getting, of course, your body's going to find a way to make sure that you can maintain short-term survival, so you can reproduce and pass on your genes yeah. and. But, you know, there is, the, the, at the consequence of these, these vitamins and minerals that are required for proteins that are yeah. needed to maintain yeah. long-term function. Yeah. So, 
you know, with vitamin K, I think that's that's a beautiful example how yeah. the blood clotting. Yeah, you can works. understand why blood clotting. Right. Uh, some Dane got, uh, named Dam got the Nobel Prize for figuring out that there's something in greens that uh, is essential for blood clotting, and what it is is a compound used in photosynthesis in plants. So anything green has it, and it's a cofactor for an enzyme that adds an extra acid group to glutamic acid, which already has one acid group. So you have two acid groups sticking out, and you can bind calcium. So all the 16 vitamin K-dependent proteins are calcium-binding proteins, and blood clotting is some network of calcium and a protein, and it stops, um, it makes a clot in your blood, and you don't bleed to death. Yeah, I think that vitamin K is a, a, a good one to talk about because I think, you know, there's there's two biologically active forms of vitamin K, vitamin K1 and vitamin K2. Yeah. And, you know, like you mentioned, vitamin K1 is, you know, found in plants, so phylloquinone, and, and you know, this type of vitamin K, K1, is lipophilic, and so it goes directly to the liver, and, and that's where it activates all these proteins that are involved in blood clotting, yeah. that they're in the liver. Uh, but you know, if, and, and if you get enough of that, you know, K1 to activate those proteins in the liver, then more of it can stay around in the circulation, where it can then activate these other proteins that are important for pulling calcium out of the bloodstream to prevent calcification right. of the arteries, take it to the bones where it's supposed to go, right? Yeah. But vitamin K2, which is found in you know, fermented you know foods like natto. Yeah, um, the Japanese have a, a health food called natto. And most Westerners think it looks a little yucky and it tastes yeah. a little yucky and it smells a little yucky. But the Japanese love it because they consider it a health food. And the people, the epidemiology shows that people who eat natto, uh, it's a, a bacterial fermented soybean, a subtleist fermented soybean. And uh, the people who eat that get less heart disease and they get less bone fractures. Well, one of the proteins that's vitamin K dependent is something called matrix glaprotein. And that, the function of that is to bind calcium phosphate crystals, which form very easily in the blood and is the uh, beginning of an atherosclerotic plaque and prevent it causing an atherosclerotic plaque. And so, we sort of understand how it's working. People who take Coumadin, or it's also called Warfarin, it's an anti-clotting protein, so you don't get thrombosis. 30 million people take that. Well, they get calcification of the arteries at a much higher rate, and they get bone fractures at a much higher rate. So all this fits together. Anyway, Joyce... You know, I saw a paper on, on the fact that people that were taking uh, Warfarin if they also took um, menaquinone, which is vitamin K2, yeah. from natto, a natural yeah. source, that because vitamin K2 does not go to the liver to yeah. activate blood yeah. clotting proteins, it's not the lipophilic, it, d- it stays around in the circulation, mm-hmm. they could take it, it doesn't interfere with blood clotting process, and that it negated some of the um, negative, eff- or, oh, okay. you know, so it that, negated some that of the negative effects. That might make sense. So they're really good. We... Dr. McCann and my group did a beautiful review. We didn't do any experimental work on this. It was all theoretical. But it was a, I thought it was a beautiful review. And uh, she showed that bone fractures, there's a, 
protein called osteocalcin. And if you knock out that protein in mice so they can't make it, then you test the mice and the bones break much more easily. So you need that protein to make a strong bone. It's located in the bone. It's moving calcium around in the bone. And it helps make a strong bone. If you don't have... If you don't have your vitamin K, you don't make that protein. And so, and similarly, matrix uh, GLOP protein. If you don't have enough vitamin K, you don't make that protein. You get calcification of the arteries. And people taking warfarin, Coumadin, tend to get both bone fractures and calcification of the arteries. So this explains all sorts of medical things we didn't understand before. So the... Anyway, I call this idea triage because on the battlefield, it's a French word, uh, the docs used to divide the people up into three groups. Those who were wounded so badly that you couldn't do anything about it and they go to one side. And those who are going to get better anyway whether they treat them or not. And then those who, where it pays to treat them because you can make a difference. Well... Somebody said I should have called it biage, not triage. But anyway, uh, I use that word. And um, so, Bruce, the the question is, you know, the 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 RDAs. Can you explain like how an RDA is set? What an RDA is, a DRI, and an EAR, yeah. and okay. how we define them, what they are, and are they are we are we getting enough of these vitamins and minerals to to prevent the long term consequences, right? Well, all of nutrition is basically short-term. That is, you're looking for some disease. Scurvy, the British, a third of British sailors on these long trips would die and the teeth would fall out. It was a horrible disease. It was something called scurvy. And uh, then they found that if they they picked up a load of limes in the Caribbean and the sailors munched the limes, they didn't get any scurvy. And so... That's why British sailors were called limeys, or Brits were called limeys. <laughs> anyway, uh, people over the years, people figured out there were these vitamins that were necessary for our metabolism. And berry berry was another one. And, uh, and the, over the years, we've discovered these 15 vitamins and 15 essential minerals. Uh, but it's all based on some disease that shows up or people die. And, in fact, I'm writing a review now saying, hey, we should rethink vitamins because half the proteins in Dr. McCann's analyses turned out to be involved with long-term things, not short-term. And calcification of the arteries or DNA damage or uh, other things that were more long-term. And those are what we call the disease of aging, this insidious damage that eventually gives you brain decay or heart disease. And we, sh- as humans, we're interested in that. We want to live a long lifespan. I'm 86, and I'm still running a big lab, and I work Saturday afternoons. I, I don't want to kick off if I can help it, but I have an Italian wife who feeds me a wonderful diet, and uh, she kept on nagging me I should get more exercise. And one day I said, when I feel like exercise, I run my experiments, I skip controls, and I jump to conclusions. <laughs> so I like that joke so much, I must have told it 50 times. And she said, I've heard enough of that joke. I'm getting you a personal trainer. So now I go and work out uh, twice a week. Anyway. 
So the RDA, you're saying, is set on preventing acute deficiencies. Yeah. So the, the two numbers that the committees come up with, one is the EAR, estimated average requirement, and that's some distribution in the population of the vitamin or the mineral. And the other is the RDA, which is set at two standard devi- deviations above that. That's for the population. So if you're below the EAR, that's the definition of you're not getting enough. And it's not a pretty picture because Americans are eating all this, all these empty calories. Right. Uh, Wait, you, so let me interrupt. Yeah. So the EAR is actually set two standard deviations lower than the RDA, and people still aren't even meeting that. Yeah. So, and that's what, you know, national health statistics, they use the EAR to determine whether or not populations are getting yeah. enough of certain vitamins and but, minerals. Right. But it's all based on short-term. Uh, for right. vitamin D, they based it on uh, a short-term effect, which is uh, calcium. Uh, uh, so, uh, so the and, question is then, yeah. how do we know if we're getting enough vitamin K, if we're getting enough you know, of the vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin B vitamins, you know, how do we know we're getting enough of these to prevent the long-term diseases yeah. of aging? Well, we right? don't really, but the committees usually put in a safety factor, and so, but it's, it could be too much or too, so I want to make things, what you want to know is, does it shorten your life? And you could do that in mice and do those kinds of questions. But those are expensive to do, and, uh, and nobody's been really doing them. Anyway, I'm writing a theoretical paper why there are lots of things out there that we probably should be calling vitamins that are more long-term things. For, I'll give you just one example. The two carotenoids are these orange pigments in every plant. The reason they turn orange in the fall in New England is because the chlorophyll goes away and you're left with this orange carotenoid. Beta-carotene is a good example. Now, that also goes to vitamin A, but that's a different thing. So there's 600 carotenoids in nature, but humans have about 15 or 20 of them in the brain. And in the macular of the eye, there's a yellow spot that has two carotenoids in them, luteine and zeaxanthine, which nobody calls vitamins, but nature's putting them in the macular of your eye. And if you don't get them, you get macular degeneration. The eye people have shown that. What, so what do carotenoids do? Well, the reason they're orange is they have all these conjugated double bonds. And um, if you have light and a dye, you can the energy of that light gets transmitted to oxygen and you can make something called singlet oxygen, which is a very energetic form of oxygen that can oxidize things much better than just plain oxygen. So that's nasty in a cell because it starts destroying all your structure. And what plants use, and they're out in the light all the time in strong light, what they do is they have these carotenoids which dissipate that extra energy of singlet oxygen as heat in this double bond chain and detoxify it. 
and people have worked all that out. So, and in the macula of the eye, that yellow color absorbs blue light, which is the most toxic form of light. So it keeps your eyes from oxidizing in the, in the key part of your eye. Well, so people sort of understand that, but shouldn't that be a vitamin? It's just a longevity vitamin. It's something that's helping your long-term health, and I think it should be. Anyway, I'm writing a paper arguing all of that. Do, do these committees determine RDAs only based on things that can kill you? Or do they determine, like, for example, lutein and zeaxanthin, if they're, they're most certainly preventing, you know, age-related macular degeneration? Yeah. So, you know, is it just because it's a long-term, it's something that happens later in life? Well, practically no attention has been paid to that kind of thing. And we don't, the definition of a vitamin is you don't give it to a mouse and it dies. Sort of. So it is basically it's based very on survival. It's short-term stuff. Wow. And I want to say there should be these longevity vitamins that are maybe an antioxidant like uh, some of these carotenoids or other th- things that are giving you a long lifespan. Right. So the other, the other question, I guess, would be then, can we as scientists dev- devise certain biomarkers then that we can measure as right now as a, yeah. con- you know, as a biomarker of something that is a disease of aging? Yeah. Uh, that's something we're thinking about all the time. I think the future is preventive medicine will have a lot to do with nutrition because these 30 micronutrients, they're also called, the vitamins and the minerals, and I think there can be another couple of dozen that are helping us live a long lifespan. Uh, those compounds... We want to know how much we should be getting from our diet. Most of it's nutritional. And in the future, all this is going to come within 10 years, I think. You put your finger in a machine, and already there's a company in Boulder that can measure 1,500 proteins in a finger prick of blood. And so we're going to find which is the vulnerable protein that indicates that you're magnesium deficient, and that's half the country, uh, and tell you, hey, you're magnesium deficient. That's uh, we, what we, Rhonda's trying to prove experimentally right now, but nobody's proven it yet, that what you do when you're short of magnesium because of triage, you eliminate one of the DNA repair enzymes and put the magnesium in some more essential uh, protein. Yeah, well, you need magnesium to make and utilize ATP. That yeah. would be an essential Yeah, function. so every... DNA repair enzyme requires magnesium, and some of them may be uh, the things that go first. Anyway, we're trying to determine what's the vulnerable protein when you start getting low. But you don't want to get low to the point of disease. You want to get low to prevent some insidious damage that leads to aging. So I think when you eat a bad diet, you're accelerating your aging in some way or another. And the obese are eating the worst diet in the country, if you define worse as ratio of calories to essential micronutrients. They're just eating empty calories. You need, you need to eat your greens to get vitamin K and magnesium in the center of the chlorophyll molecule and folic acid, all those you get from your greens. So you need to eat greens. And then you need to eat some nuts, you get some good things from nuts, and then you need to eat fish 
because you get the omega-3 fatty acids, which are critical for brain function. And Rhonda showed critical for uh, disease like autism and ADHD and impulsive behavior. All your social hormones are, are controlled by vitamin D. You don't get enough. And vitamin D is a special one because that goes to a hormone. It's really more a hormone than a vitamin. But it's a steroid hormone, just like estrogen. And the nice thing about these steroid hormones is they bind to a receptor which goes to the DNA and recognizes 12 bases in the DNA. the six bases, three base spacer, and then another six bases. And what that does is that's the telltale signature of estrogen or vitamin D hormone. So it's a steroid hormone, and it's controlling a thousand genes, lots of them in your brain. So if you're vitamin D deficient, you're in deep trouble. And that has a lot to do with skin color because a dark skin prevents you getting UVB radiation. That's the burning rays of the sun. And, you know, you can get burnt if you get too much sunshine all at once. And in the tropics, you need a lot of melanin in your skin to keep UVB radiation out. And you have racially completely different people. The Africans and the Southern Indians and people in New Guinea all have very dark skin, but they're not racially related. And the reason is they're living in the tropics where you need a dark skin to prevent getting fried by the sun. If you put an Irishman in Australia, they're in deep trouble. And the solution is a hat and sunscreen. And if you put an African-American in Chicago, they're in deep trouble because in a northern latitude, if you have a dark skin, you're in trouble. You're not making your vitamin D, and you need to do something about it. And so you, every dark I tell all my Indian friends and my Hispanic friends and my African-American friends, hey, you better get your vitamin D tested because 90% of them are too low. And yeah, 70% of the U.S. population, you know, is... is yeah, we're in playing enough. video games and watching TV, and we're not out in the sun. Right. And we're in our car rather than walking. And then there's the problem with physicians not knowing what, you know, the RDA right now for vitamin D is 600 IUs of international units of vitamin D. That's that's what their people are required to take, you know, orally, like, as a supplement. But the question is, if you're very deficient, so deficiency is defined as... Um, 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels, the precursor to the hormone, less than 20 nanograms per mil. And it takes 1,000 IUs a day to raise blood levels by five points, right? Five nanograms per, per milliliter. So if you're very deficient, you're still not going to raise yourself up to a sufficient level, which is considered 30 nanograms yeah. per mil or above. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a lot of difficulty um, in terms of like what's in the scientific literature for people to figure out what is the optimal amount of vitamin D, how much do we actually need? And, you know, I think part, part of that problem is due to the, the, the fact that this, some of the things that you've been mentioning, and that is people are looking at these short-term consequences, well, rickets, you know, bone homeostasis, and that's really what most yeah. people and most doctors are looking at when they're yeah. thinking about Yeah, we don't have rickets D. anymore, but we do have rickets. 80 patients at Children's Hospital where I work came in with, the kids came in with rickets. They don't get straight bones. 
Well, rickets have been eliminated. But they were all African-American women who were nurse, nursing their babies, and they didn't have any vitamin D. Right. If you use formula, it had a little vitamin D in it. So it's one we haven't eliminated rickets, though for a long time you, doctors never saw a case of rickets. But you don't want to just look at rickets. You want to look at these long-term proteins that are helping you uh, live longer. So, and that means changing people's thinking. And so you look at all the vitamins and minerals, just one after another, some appreciable percentage of the population is really deficient. And nobody seems to care. Right. And then you get studies coming out like the Annals of Internal Medicine publishing papers saying enough is enough. You shouldn't even take your vitamin and mineral supplements because not only are they not doing anything, but they're doing harm. So yeah. That was an awful, Rhonda and I agree, that was a horrible paper, an appalling right. paper. Because, you, see, the docs are all used to r randomized, double-blind clinical trials, which makes a lot of sense, because if you test a drug in people, nobody has it to start with, and you're treating the whole population. But applying it mindlessly nutrition is stupid, because if 90% of the population has enough of vitamin X and 10% are really deficient, you want to test on that 10%. Otherwise, you'll never see anything because you're diluting it with the 90% who has enough. So you have to measure it. And then, as Rhonda pointed out, 600, if you use the RDA for vitamin D, you're not going to get somebody into the sufficient right. range. So what you need to do is measure it before and measure it afterwards. And that's not a big deal, but people who publish papers who don't do that just pollute the literature. Well, so you and mentioned that nutrition is a muddy field, and I think this is part of it where we have, we really have to rethink the way scientists are designing clinical trials. You know, you know it's not, a, you know, the same thing as a pharmacological drug. And how do we do that? How do we, how do we get other Call, you know, scientists and, and MDs and epidemiologists to understand the importance of doing this trial correctly. You yeah. know, that's because yeah. it's important. Well, I th one is medicine is sort of abdicated. Docs, most docs, uh, physicians know nothing about nutrition. They don't get any training in medical school, maybe an hour or two lecture. And nutrition is going to be the thing that's doing bad nutrition is what's doing us in be you can just see that people aren't getting the vitamins and minerals and they're disabling all sorts of genetic pathways in the body, uh, uh, pathways of metabolism. So geneticists are busily isolating, uh, working out genes that are involved with this and genes that are involved with that. There are 400 genes involved with autism, but Rhonda figured out which micronutrients are key in autism, and that's the thing that we need to do, because you can intervene there. You can give them to people and prevent it. So I think prevention is going to be involve different people. It's going to involve people who know some nutrition and can figure out mechanism. And it's the analytical methods are coming fast, so you'll be able to put your finger in a machine and it'll send the results to your iPhone and say, hey, you're short of vitamin K. Nature's conveniently colored it green, for you because it's in uh, plants and 
So eat something, eat a plate of spinach or kale or whatever a couple uh, often because you need to get your magnesium. And uh, so, and it cuts out the docs. It'll make it more individual medicine. Plus, if you have a genetic, genetics is really important too. So if you have a polymorphism, an alternate form of some gene, that means that you need more magnesium than the next fellow or more vitamin D than the next fellow, then you'll want to know that. There are lots of genetic variability, and I think a lot of it's been selected for because of nutrition. So we'll need to know both the genetics and what you're deficient in by analyzing vulnerable proteins that are long-term, not short-term. And that's all going to come over the next 10 years if we can get people to rethink things, which we're trying to do. Right. I know I was recently looking at my multivitamin, and I saw that it for vitamin A, which, as you mentioned, beta-carotene is a carotenoid that can be converted into vitamin A, um, that, you know, it, the vitamin A source was beta-carotene. And I thought, you know, well, a, a good percentage of the population has a gene polymorphism that doesn't allow them to convert beta-carotene into retinol, into the vitamin A. Mm -hmm. And so now you have people possibly taking a multivitamin that, you know, they're getting beta-carotene, which does good things in addition to, to you know, it's an antioxidant and, and does, like you mentioned, sequester singlet oxygen well, but, you know, you've got these people now that can't convert beta-carotene to vitamin A, but they don't know it. So I think, you know, these analytical methods where we're looking at both our genes and also, you know, measuring vitamin and minerals in blood, measuring proteins that are biomarkers yeah. for, um, you know, cancer or neurodegenerative diseases that are also respond to vitamins and minerals are also very important and, you know, definitely is something that over the next few decades will yeah. help us to prevent and live longer. And um, what one question I have, do you think that most people can get all their micronutrients from just their diet or do you think that supplementing is, a, is also good insurance? Well, I... I have an Italian wife, and she feeds me a wonderful Mediterranean diet. We eat lots of fish and veggies, and I love Italians cook veggies in wonderful ways with a little olive oil and garlic. And uh, So I don't eat veggies with a meal. I feel deprived. But uh, I think we all should try and eat a good diet, and it's actually a wonderful wonderful to eat a good diet because you're eating all these different kinds of food and they all taste good and, and when you get used to it, you feel better. Uh, but uh, I don't think there's any, I'm not out in the sun both for a genetic reason and, uh, and uh, other because I'm in the lab all the time. So I make sure to take a vitamin D pill and uh, I think supplements really serve a purpose. Mm -hmm. And not everybody, you expect to be a biochemist knowing exactly how much of each vitamin and all of that to take. The Linus Pauling Institute has a terrific website that discusses micronutrients, and you can get advice on the web. Uh, but uh, I think a multivitamin mineral is good insurance. And 